friends. And they were in Jerusalem taken captive by Babylon. And they were pretty cool guys. They were super wise. They were super good looking. They were super intelligent, super smart, super strong. And so they took the best of Jerusalem and brought them into Babylon because they wanted these guys to come and serve in the kingdom. So Daniel and his friends, they were trained in the customs and in the ways of Babylon. And then they were picked because they came out 10 times stronger than everyone else. They killed it. They were amazing, God-fearing men. They never, ever stopped serving God, even though they were in this Babylonian world, which is very, very evil and very disgusting and had just taken their nation and made them captives. But they were so excellent that the kings put them in positions and high positions within the, uh, the region of Babylon. Daniel was so exceptional that he was placed as one of the three administrate, uh, ministers over all of Babylon and over all of the princes. Now, there were 120 princes and they really didn't like Daniel because he was so favoured by the king and actually, it says that he was so incredible that the king made plans. He wanted to push him as second only to the king. So he was over everything. So he was a, a boss, a, a pretty cool guy. Anyway, the princes hated him. So they came together and they plotted and they schemed. They're like, let's have secret meetings as to how we can destroy this man. Like, oh, we can't find any fault in him. It's so annoying. Do you know anyone like that? You just can't find fault in them. Anyway, they, they're scheming. They're like, the only way that we're going to nail this guy is if we come up against his religion because he's so determined to worship God. So they go to the king and they pitch this scenario to the king and they're like, king, let's go and play to you. His ego here because he's, you know, all about himself and goes, king... We've got a great plan. How about everyone in Babylon only worship you? The king goes, okay, sounds like a pretty good idea. And king, if anyone worships anybody other than you, let's throw them in the lion's den. And the king goes, okay, good plan, good plan. So Daniel goes home and he opens up his windows as he's done before and he prays to God and he worships him and he thanks God three times that day as he had done before. And so they go, oh, king, excuse me, Daniel, he's been like worshipping God and you said that you would throw him in the lion's den and at this moment the king is mortified because the king loves Daniel. He was exceptional. He was... He, Daniel served him so well, and he's like, he, the king realised in that moment he had been tricked. But by his own word and his own degree, he had to throw him in this lion's den. And these are not lions like you would see at Dreamworld, you know, those cute little tigers, let's all go and get a family photo. No, no, they were ferocious lions, and I'll get to that in a minute. So Daniel was put in this lion's den, and God saved him. God came through and he shut the mouth of the lions and he was rescued and the king came in and much to the king's delight, he realized that God was true, that God was faithful, that God was alive, that he answered his prayer and he restored Daniel to his former position even higher. 
and then those guys who tricked the king, used the king to get what they wanted, he had them thrown in the lion's den. And the reason I know those lions were ferocious is because it says in there that they didn't even hit the ground before they were devoured. So that's Daniel in a nutshell. It's all good. You can, you know, get up, take your bags, go home, grab a coffee. (laughs) Now, we're just going to unpack this a little bit. Because when I was reading through Daniel, I came across this scripture. And it says things like, this is Daniel speaking, I was speechless I am overcome with anguish. I feel very weak. My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. And it got me thinking. If I were in a position where I had my work colleagues scheming and having secret meetings because they hated me so much and they needed to come and destroy my life... And then the result of that was that if I was to worship my God, as I'd always done, that I'd be thrown in the lion's den, I'm pretty sure that I would be speechless, weak, a little bit scared. I mean, let's be honest, let's be real here. If you go to work and one person says one unkind thing to you, whether it's a staff member, whether it's uh, a customer, that's going to destroy your day. Come on, be real now. All of your work friends are going to know about it. Your mother's going to get a phone call. Your spouse is definitely going to hear about it. Facebook is going to cop it that night. Then we all have to hear about it. Let's be true. That would keep you up at night. That whole five-minute scenario becomes your whole day and maybe a little bit into the next one. But how would we feel if we inserted ourselves into Daniel's story where everyone's scheming against you and then it actually threatens his life? I would feel weak. I would feel anguish. The thing is, though, in this scripture where it says that he was speechless, overcome with anguish, felt very weak and his strength was gone to the point where he couldn't breathe, He wasn't talking about being in the lion's den at all. And I just went, if you look, read the story, it doesn't actually look like Daniel was scared at all. It almost looks like he was fearless, defiant. It says, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open towards heaven, He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks to God. While he's being presented with this situation, that was his response. It's almost defiant. It's almost, it doesn't actually matter what you come up and scheme against. This is my response. And it got me thinking, if that being faced with a lion's den and this scenario didn't rattle Daniel, what was it that did? If facing ferocious lions wasn't going to bring you to your knees in in terror, what scared him? I'm going to read the scripture. It's in Daniel 10, 15 to 17. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. 
I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. What was it that terrified Daniel? Oh, that would just be finding himself in the presence of God, in the throne room, in heaven. He actually had a vision of seeing Jesus. And yes, he saw visions of the future and what was to come. But in this moment, he was in the throne room in the absolute majesty and the splendor and the presence and the power and the glory of God. And it left him undone. In Matthew 10, 28... It reads, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. So as you read through this book of Daniel, it becomes very apparent that his eyes were fixed in this supernatural realm. His eyes were fixed on the Lord. He often found himself there and he lived his life out of that place. It wasn't living his life and then occasionally trying to get God in. It was fixed eyes on things above, on the Lord, and out of that came every decision, reaction, response, his obedience, the way that he lived his life came from that place. So Pastor Mel talked on authority last week and Uh, and how Daniel served three kings. I want to speak this morning, just going to run through very uh, quickly three points, which is number one, to know who you are because of whose you are. Second point, at all times. And number three, a reverent response. So number one, know who you are. Know who you are because of who you you are, because of who you belong to. Let's have a look here at Daniel's position in Babylon and how he was actually treated by his colleagues. So it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That's Daniel 6.1.3. So we understand that Daniel was their boss. He was the big boss And it's interesting that when these princes came to accuse him, they actually went after his identity. Have a look at how they spoke about Daniel. It says in Daniel 6.13, that Daniel, who was one of the captives of Judah. Seriously. It's like going to your CEO at work and making a complaint about him. And instead of making a plaint going, oh, excuse me, our most senior boss, that CEO who was once down here working flipping burgers. It's like, why would you drag someone right back to where they came from? 
The devil is actually the accuser. And these guys, they bring this accusation. It was an accusing situation. And just throw back right in Daniel's face exactly where he came from. The devil does this to us all the time. Aren't you that immigrant? Aren't you the one who went bankrupt that time? Aren't you the one who had that affair? Aren't you the one who was fired? Weren't you once that criminal? Aren't you the one who failed that relationship, that course, that business? Aren't you that ex-drug alcoholic, you know, person? Aren't you that divorcee? thing is so unkind when the devil comes to just throw these things in your face. You'll be walking your best life in Jesus and the moment you become a threat, up comes the accusations, up comes throwing back in your face to remind you of exactly where you came from. But this unkind tactic of the enemy, it doesn't hold any power because where you come from actually just gives God glory. It's actually called your testimony. It just highlights to the world how good God is. Yeah. I, uh, I recently watched a movie. I actually found something worthwhile on Netflix to watch. If you want to waste half an hour, sit there and try and find something worthwhile to watch. <laughs> I usually end up in true stories or just back at Man from Snowy River too. Come on now, are there any Jess and Jim? Yeah, I'm feeling the love. I'm feeling the love. Oh, anyway, I need to get back to my notes. <laughs> it's the best movie, but we're going to move on. So I found this, this movie, and it was based on a true story. It's called The Walk. And it was about a man uh, in the 1970s. He tightrope walked between the Twin Towers. He actually did this. It was an illegal walk, but it was pretty wild. It was a cool movie. And in his training... There was a, um, a gig that he was given at a festival to walk tight walk a rope over a river. And in the tight rope walking, they explained that you have to have your eyes fixed on a certain point and not lose focus. And so in his training, he gets out there and he starts walking on this tight rope. The thing is that at this festival, you had all of these people underneath who thought it would be hilarious to start cursing him and to start making fun of him and to start throwing all of these kinds of names at him. So while he's there, he's got his eyes fixed and then he starts hearing these accusations come up against him and all of these curses and these words and he paid attention and lost focus and then he fell into the water. People... People are going to ridicule you. They're going to mock you. They're going to throw in your face where you came from. They're going to be unkind. They're going to underestimate you. And they're going to accuse you of all kind of ugly intentions. But in these moments, you've got to remember who you are because of whose you are and act out of that place. It reminds me of the saying of Mother Teresa... This is one of her quotes. It says, people are often unreasonable, illogical and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. 
If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. When you spend years building, someone could destroy it overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you you have and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it was between you and your God. It was never between you and them anyway. Know who you are because of whose you are. Fixed eyes. And out of that place, we live. It was always between you and God anyway. Brings me to my second point. At all times. See, Daniel exercised consistency in his life. When you walk out your life, sometimes you're going to find yourself in the highest of positions and sometimes you'll find yourself in a lion's den. But Daniel knew how to walk out consistency at all times. And I think his life can probably be really well summed up in this one scripture in Daniel 6.10. It's the same one, but let's read it again. Now Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem three times a day. He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. It was habitual. It was just the way he lived. It was just what he did. He lived his life consistently, praying to God, and no threat was ever going to stop him. There was nothing that was ever going to stop that in his life because he had fixed eyes. So he was consistent in his reactions, responses, and obedience. In the seasons of prosperity and high authority and in the seasons of the dungeons, I'm going to ask some questions this morning, some hard questions that I just want you to ask yourself. What kind of relationship do I have with Jesus, really? You know, we sing that song that I will extol you at all times. When my seasons change, am I consistent? What is my relationship with him like, really? Do I have a crisis relationship with God? Oh, my goodness, I'm in a mess. I'm in a real, real mess. Oh, what are we going to do? Family, what are we going to do? Oh, okay, no, I remember. Someone, someone go and find me my Bible. What, what do you mean? It's in the last place I left it. Just go and get it for me. Why would you ask me where that is? Help me out. Don't you see I'm stressed? Family, go. Go get my Bible. Okay, all right. We've got to go to church. Okay, all right. Oh, ooh, it's Sunday, five minutes past nine. It's all right. Everyone, get in the car. 
Come on. I know. Oh, that's okay. One shoe's fine. No one's looking anyway. In the car. Off we go. Okay. Someone, someone, quick. No, no. Grab that CD. The, well, what is that? City Point Worship. Go and get it so we can put it on the car. Can you grab your sister's other shoe while you're there, please? All right. We're in the car. We're on our way to church. We're here. Music started. Oh, good. We'll just sneak in here at the back. Okay. All right. Oh, honey, can you go back to the car in the glove box? Just grab whatever change you can so we can throw something in that offering. Come on. We've got to get all in here. Here we go. All right. Now, music started. I'm on my knees. Here we go. Now, I'm going to cross my legs, cross my fingers, raise my hands, and really, really, really hope that this works. Are we in a crisis relationship with Jesus? You know, do, do we get to the end of those seasons and go, oh, phew, oh. I am so, so glad we got through that. That was, that was tough. That was exhausting. Now I can get back to my normal life. Back to Sunday sleep-ins. Back to prayer reduced at grace around the dinner table. That's if the footy's not on. It's easy. It's almost the obvious thing to do, you know, when we hit really difficult times to turn to Jesus. And he wants us to. He really does. Oh, we serve the most beautiful, compassionate, loving, generous God. And he wants to help us through these seasons. He really does. He is your helper in time of trouble. He is your healer, provider, deliverer, and saviour. But let's ask ourselves this. When I'm not in serious trouble, when I'm fine dining, when there's peace in my world, food in the pantry, health in the family, when I have worked so hard for all of these things, when I don't really need Jesus, What's my relationship with him like in those times? John and I developed this saying years ago. It's when all else fails, turn to God, which is your obvious choice. But when all is successful, fall to your knees. Which brings me to point three. Musos, if you could join me on stage, I'd be most welcome. Did you know that although Daniel, he served four kings, he was known to the king as the one who served the living God continually. Continually. It's verse 20. He was known as the one who served the living God continually. Eyes fixed. I have to wonder in the day-to-day if we have become a little bit too familiar with the God of the universe, a little too casual with our creator. What's up, God? It's like, hey, Jesus. Yeah, he's my bro. What even is that? 
someone educate me later. Yeah, me and God, you know, we have this understanding. Do you? How about at dinner time? Thank you, Jesus, for this food. Amen. You know, while I was reading my uh, Bible in the morning, I came across a passage of Scripture where the disciples, they were all sitting around with Jesus, and it was just before he was about to be crucified, and this beautiful woman walks in with an expensive, extravagant bottle of perfume, and she breaks it open and she pours it over his head. And it says in that scripture that the disciples were indignant. It wasn't just Judas. It says disciples. It's a plural word. And I get it. The disciples, they had done three years of ministry with Jesus in close proximity. They'd given up everything to come and to minister with him. They'd seen the need, they'd seen the hurting. They'd seen the poor. They'd seen the sick. They were indignant because they knew how much this extravagant bottle of perfume was worth. They knew that if they sold that, that it could go and fulfill need. They knew how much the perfume was worth. But in that minute, they actually lost sight of what Jesus was worth. Jesus was about to do something wonderful, but they just got a bit distracted by the natural cost. Is knowing Jesus allowed to cost you anything? Do we really see him as he is? If you can, guys, you could bring up that slide with these following scriptures. It says, He is clothed with majesty and splendor. His magnificence can never be praised enough. He is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is beyond our understanding. He is our strength, our fortress. He is our refuge in times of trouble. He rules over all the kingdoms and the nations of the world in his hand is power and might. He doesn't tire or weary. In Nehemiah 9.6, it reads, You, you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, it compels in us reverence, surrender, worship. Come back and read this scripture. The one that undid Daniel. 
While he was speaking to me, I looked down at the ground, unable to say a word. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing in front of me, I am terrified by the vision I have seen, my Lord, and I am very weak. How can someone like me, your servant, talk to you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. 